Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. Since you heard that a long time since I've said it. Um, I don't know what you're thinking, I know what you're thinking. Craig, you said it was just gonna be a tiny little break. What happened? Well, I was just going back through our episode history because I needed to know. I had totally forgotten exactly what episode we were on, 128, if you must know, with Lenny James. We'll get to that in a second. Because our last one was obviously 127 with James Harkness, a blinder of an episode, I'm sure you'll agree. But um, that was mid-May. That was mid-May. And here we are in August. What has happened? What has gone on? My goodness me. It's been a right roller coaster, hasn't it? I hope, I genuinely hope that you're all doing well and you're piecing things together and you're taking things day by day. I think that's the best we can do um, at the moment, isn't it? Isn't it? I don't know. Who has the answers? Well, nobody uh, at the moment. But I'm really pleased to tell you that the Two Shot Podcast is back up and running. And I'm thrilled. I'm really made up that we've got some great guests lined up. Um, As you can hear, I'm not at home. I'm not in a studio. I'm out in the park. And basically... um, there were some builders next door fixing a roof, very noisy. Neighbours upstairs moving out, very noisy. So I thought I'd, uh, I'd uh, get out into the park and I'm here. It's very quiet as you can hear. There's a little birthday party going over there. They've got all the balloons and everything. There's a couple sunbathing, some dog walkers, some bike riders. And over in the distance is a woman being put through her paces by a personal trainer on this very, very muggy, muggy day. So, last night, I got on the blower with my very good friend, Lenny James, and I thought, who would be the best person to kick things off to get back after this, this, it was a much too long a break, wasn't it? Yeah, and I thought, well, nobody else would hit the mark quite like Lenny James, and oh my God, did we have a conversation. So much so, and I think the timing of it was bang on, I think it was bang on two and a half hours, and it was incredible. And I was saying to Lenny, I don't know if I said it on the podcast or just after we stopped recording, I said, you know, we've been mates for so long and there's still all this history that that I don't know because you don't have that time you don't sit one-on-one with somebody else and focus and put the spotlight on them for for however long it is it turns out two and a half hours and you know Lenny I'll test this we we actually only had to stop because uh yeah we were both dying for the toilet 
um, after two and a half hours of Natterin. But it was brilliant. It was just, it was brilliant to see him, brilliant to talk to him, brilliant to listen to him. Um, and, I, and I think you are going to love it. I think you're going to really, really love it. Now, because it's, it's quite an epic comeback, we have decided to split this up. So it's one episode split into two. So part one is today, which is Thursday. And part two will be in your feeds first thing tomorrow, which is Friday. We didn't want to make you wait a week. What do you think we are, animals? Never do that to you after this. No, 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 no. Um, so, yeah, look, <laughs> there's a lot of talk in this, and I am not going to add to it, although it's really lovely to do this intro for the first time since mid-May. Uh, I've missed it. I know you lot have missed it. And can I just say, just before we get into the episode, thank you so, so much for the support We've had lovely messages, lovely emails, a very, very slight drop-off on Patreon, though I would understand because there's not new episodes coming out, but there's people discovering the podcast all the time and coming on board. And speaking of that, yeah, we've got some new merch ideas that I'm going to run past you, but we'll, we'll save that till the outro. Let's get to it. Okay, we are back. This is episode 128 of the Two Shot Podcast with the majestic Lenny James. Enjoy. I shall see you at the end. Because I hadn't done this for ages. It's been... This is the third year, Lenny, that I've been My doing God. the podcast. And it's, it's been quite a long time since I've recorded any and I think you know I don't really talk about lockdown that much but I think because of lockdown I just didn't feel ready to, yeah. to speak to people because you know we're doing this now and I'm looking at you you're in Atlanta and I'm here in Gloucestershire I'm in Austin if, oh you're in Austin now I'm in Austin Texas oh you've moved around right? <laughs> yes <laughs> 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 Weren't you in Atlanta last week? No, I wasn't. I've been I've been in Austin now for um, well since we got back from um, from doing Save Me Two basically, and right. be- before I went there, this is my just about to go in my third year of shooting the um, spin-off show for Walking Dead here in Austin. Right, but oh, it's right. like it's like seven months of the year, each year. But this time around, it's been longer because I did Austin, London for Save Me, back to Austin for Fear the Walking Dead, and then we went on lockdown. So we've just... We stayed here because our place in LA is having work done on it, and we can't... We couldn't move back there, so it's been Austin for... (laughs) It's been Austin. It's been Austin, um, <laughs> like the fifteenth floor of an apartment block. Um, and you do, are you doing all right? Um, am I doing all right? I am doing all right. I'd be lying if I didn't say um, I'm screaming for this to be over. Um, yeah, and to get back to or get on with whatever happens next or whatever the next stage is. Um, but we have been all right. We had a. A uh, couple of our kids here with us 
for a good stint and that broke up the monotony and um and now it you know it's me the missus and the dog and and it is every single day really so it's just about finding a way of uh navigation navigating keeping keeping your keeping your brain in and I mean I said this really early on to myself but I still think it's a mantra worth holding on to which is remembering what day of the week it is and keeping yeah. the keeping the weekdays weekdays and keeping the weekends weekends has been a really tough thing to do, but a, a a good thing to set your mind at. And someone said to me, "Get up in the morning and make your bed." Yeah, make your bed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> right, so, right, okay. Yeah, it's, it's the little things. But I'll literally, do it. literally, we are living by the rules that people who are in prison live by. Get up, yeah. make your bed. Make every day a different day, and and, um, and survive on small victories. So um, yeah, it's a bit. And like I was that. I was so motivated at the, at the beginning of it, and I was doing lots of things. I was reading, and then all of a sudden, I think it happened within the space of I don't know twenty four hours. I couldn't concentrate on a page of a book, and I kept going back over paragraph to paragraph, and I was reading like the same page three times. Yeah. I've hardly watched any television. I've only just started in the past three days to watch some television. Yeah, I, I, it's been a bit like that for me because I was like... I mean, firstly, because it comes in stages, right? So, Oh, yeah. Waves. Yeah, so initially what, we yeah. were like, we're just going to... We had a scheduled break in between filming because we were halfway through the, the season that we were going to break for a week. So we were told we're going to break for a week. And then on the last day of filming, they said, no, it's going to be a month. So you just think it's a month. Mm. And so you gear up for a month, but then you start reading stuff and looking back and talking to people and chatting to them. And you realise, oh, no, it's going to be, could be the end of the year. Could be yeah. could be three months, could be, you know, five months. So it was a period where I was just like, well, I, you know, I'll get busy. I got requests for writing and stuff like that. I got, you know, uh, an ask to see whether or not I should, uh, I could, have, whether or not I've got a third series of Save Me in me. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll, you know, get going on that. And um, and you look at it and you get in, trying to get into a kind of routine. And I decided that I wasn't going to come out of however long this lockdown was going to be with nothing. So I decided I was going to teach myself the guitar because I've always wanted to play the guitar, but nothing flashy, nothing to play in front of anybody else, just so I can Something sit down. You. Yeah, just sit down yeah. on my own, play the guitar, sing to myself. That's all. I only ever want, I only want to be that, that good, not, saying it, not, not singing to anybody else, no one to hear me. So I was going to, I was going to do that. And, uh, and I started off all right and kind of writing and playing guitar and writing and playing guitar and gradually it's just tapered off it's it's just it didn't exactly fall off the cliff but it did get kind of like i'll play i'll play tomorrow just as i got my fingers you know hardened to the strings and felt like i I was starting to get it just the kind of creative juices just um dried up for a minute and again I, i don't know whether it's the, seeing the end of the tunnel or hoping for the end of the tunnel or or just fooling myself. But over the last 
two weeks maybe, it's um, it's started to come back. It's um, I've started to refocus myself. But there's a whole six weeks where if you said to me, what did you do? I've got absolutely no idea. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely the same. So I was I had, to, I had to go on this new radio station for the Times, Times Radio, that right. I've started. And I had to go on last night about talking about arts and culture and whatnot. And they were talking to me about, you know, the favourite things I've watched and read and stuff over <laughs> lockdown. And I'm going, um, yeah, not a lot, to be honest. I mean, I'm a gra- my cooking's improved immensely. Yeah. And I'm a good cleaner. I know that so much. But apart from that, apart from those daily routines, things go by. And as you say, like, six weeks, couldn't tell you. Yeah. I could not tell you. Yeah, and I was just... I was listening to something on the radio and just in passing, they kind of mentioned the five months of lockdown. And I was like, it's been five months. Mm. Where did that go? Yeah. And then I'm looking at it kind of going, I could have done at least two of the projects that I set out to <laughs> to do. I could have, yeah. instead of being 25 pages into one of them, I could have knocked at least two of them on the head in that time. But, you know... Um, it's a it's a but one there's off. Such really. a, there's such a big difference because I've always and you know we've known each other for years and I've always been really good in my own company. Like I love going out to eat by myself. Totally fine. My favourite thing to do is to go to the the pictures yeah. by myself and sit in the dark and watch a film. But when it's when it's in force. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's not even like walking past strangers or yeah. being in a restaurant or being in a pub where you can hear the chatter of other people that that's all gone yeah it, it it sort of you have to recalibrate and it's a it's a weird thing that happens because um because just because it saved me really i've been basically writing kind of every minute I'm not doing something else, I've been basically either thinking about it, coming up with it, or writing it for the last, I would say, three years. But, Mm. um, so, and during that time, um, I was very, very, very selective about the television I watched. So I couldn't really watch, I could do maybe one or two shows that I was engrossed in, and anything else I watched, um had to be stuff that I felt like was just flushing me out of ideas that were so simple and straightforward or so completely different to anything I was thinking about or, or writing about that it didn't get in the way of... Or, or was, that, was that also because you didn't want to be influenced by anything else or anybody oh, else's Oh, absolutely. Ideas. I didn't, I didn't yeah. want to be in, influenced by anything else. I mean, you know, in, in the sh- um, shorthand way, I kind of say I couldn't watch good TV. Because it would just get in, you know, people would kind of go, oh, the Ozark, you should really watch that. Or the OA, you should really watch that. Or, you know, mm. uh, all of these shows, you go, you've got to really watch that, it's really good. And I go, well, if you say it's really good, The Affair, you've got to watch that, it's really good. You say that, I go, I can't watch it because it will just influence me and influence me. And um, so I was very selective, didn't, w- didn't watch loads of stuff. I'd watch, and uh, I'd watch... Um, Law and Order was a good one for me because it's it's just it's fantastic kind of um, by the by the book kind of one hour of television one and yeah. done 
you can just, you know, or you can watch a few of them in the row and then you've forgotten them and you can watch them all over again the next day. And it's um, quite story of the week, isn't it? And it's very story of the week and it, you just kind of go through and it's done. Yeah. So I would do, I'd do stuff, stuff like that. So, or I'd do Family Guy. I'd just do something that was just outrageous or something like that. I'd do mm. all of that. Um, one, one of the things that um, lockdown has done is i just watch anything at the moment. Really? Yeah, it's com- completely the opposite. It's just like, it's just uh, any- anything. And it's, you know, me, me and the missus have this regular kind of comment. What are we going to watch tonight? What sh- should we watch anything? What's, what are we going to put on? What should we do? And, I, and I've got to the point now, because I've caught up on all of the good stuff I think I was supposed to have caught up on. I've pretty much caught up on, caught up on them. And, um, and not much more, well, nothing's being made at the moment. So, um, so she'll go. What are we going to watch? I go anything. <laughs> I'll give any. I'll give anything a go at the moment. Just why not dip your toe in the water? Yeah, I just and it's uh, and uh, and I don't know how to kind of get myself get myself out of it. Um, but like I say, the last last two or three weeks has been has been much better. I've gone back to my discerning self. Well, it's funny because. The last two or three days, I've been able to focus more, and it's been obviously really hot over here in the UK. And uh, you know, my son's been with his mum, so I've had a bit of time by myself. And I went to the park yesterday, and I just started reading in the sunshine, and it was really cathartic, and it was a nice bit of calmness, you know. Yeah. And then I started watching a show that I'd been wanting to see for ages called Rami. Oh, right, yes. Which I'm sure you've seen. I've seen the first one. It's one of those... The first episode. The first episode. It's one of those I'm going to have to go back to because I don't like him. (laughs) And it's a really big problem for me. Okay. And it's not... It's not not that I think the show is bad. Mm. It's just that... um, do you mean it's the character? Gonna, the character. Right, okay. Oh, absolutely the character. I don't yeah. know the fella. But absolutely, yeah. absolutely the character. Because I have a slight issue, and, and they do it a lot. It's a kind of, it's a slightly kind of thing I had about Fleabag kind of early on as well, is that um, is when a show is set around some, someone who's, to different degrees, basically just an out-and-out narcissist. Mm. You're kind of... The, my patience sometimes is short. Now, I love Fleabag. I thought she really kind of pulled it off. Um, but my at the beginning, my patience is kind of short because I do find myself a lot going, oh, you know better than that. You're smarter than that. Yeah. You're, you, know, you know exactly what you're doing. Don't ask me to cut you some slack when you knew exactly what you were doing when you were bloody well doing it. So behave yourself. And I spend my whole time having that conversation with myself and then going, I'm not, I'm not sure I can, you know. So, I mean, we were just talking to someone about it the other day um, who was just going, no, you have to go back. You have to go back. You have to go and watch it again. And, and we will. But I did that with, what was the show I did it with? Which is a really good show. And it was a really tricky one for me because it's a really good show. Everybody's doing a f- fantastic job. The actors are just 
brilliant. The scripts were absolutely fantastic, but I just hated every single character in it and tried three times, both me and my missus, we tried three times. It's succession. We tried three times to watch this yeah. show and yeah. kept going back because people I love and respect kept saying, no, you've got to go back. You've got to stick with it. It's fantastic. And I went back and at different points... Um, I think the first time I didn't even get through the first episode. Second time, I think I got to the second episode. And the third time, I'm pretty much sure I got to the third episode and, um, and just said, I, can't, I, I, I cannot choose mm. to spend any more time no. <laughs> in well, the company exactly of these the characters. Because I started that um, maybe four weeks into lockdown because of hearsay and, yeah. and also the calibre of the cast. And, yeah, Brian Cox is you know, storming I, in it. He's so oh, fantastic they're all, in it. They're all incredible, yeah. but I felt just drained and slightly depressed <laughs> and everything was just a little bit more bleaker than what it actually yeah. was at the end of an episode. And I just went, I can't do it because I'm yeah. torturing myself. I can't yeah. do it. And I just go, and I got a mate who was kind of going, it's just amazing to see what they're going to do next. And I go, I got no interest <laughs> in what they're going to do next <laughs> because I, I know this much I can guarantee the thing they do next is going to be utterly shitty. And there's a bit in it. I don't, I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to sound like I'm just shitting on this program no, so I'm not no you're it's, not it's 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 I I respect how, the caliber of it I think it's top notch I can see why it's won all the awards there's a a moment in the in one of the episodes where the family fly off in helicopters to play um baseball or or touch football it's either um, it's either thanksgiving or or uh, one of the holidays they fly off and yeah they suddenly everything's being catered and and all of that and there's this little hispanic kid whose parents are kind of working for them and one of the brothers i think it's the the one played by the i don't know but one of the one of the brothers kind of says to the kid come up and bat he gets the kid to to come up and 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 take a bat and he says if you get a home run i'll give you a million dollars and the kid goes, the kid's just shocked that it's kind of happening. He goes, no, I'll give you, I'll give you a million dollars. And he gets a checkbook and he writes a check out for a million dollars. And he says to the kid, if you, if you hit it or you'll strike or get, um, you know, a home run or whatever, I'll give you uh, a million dollars. And his parents, his parents are there and the guy's there and, and a couple of the people there, but not nearly enough of them go, oh, don't be silly. And he goes, no, 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 the kid, this is a million dollars. It's a life-changing. And, of course, the kid doesn't do it. Um, and, then, and then this rich fella just laughs at him and, and rips up the check. Rips it up, yeah. Rips up the check in front of him mm. and, and completely humiliates this guy, completely humiliates his family. Complete, and it's a, it's a rich white man doing that to a young Hispanic kid. And just doing it. And then in the background of an, another bit that's going on, you see one of their fixers go up to the Hispanic family and give them this really expensive watch. And you go, what are they going to do with this expensive watch? This isn't do it. I just thought, I hate you all. I hate what you stand for and I hate what you think is the nice side of yourselves. I hate you all. I can't and spend I any more time with you. I don't need that in my life. No. No, certainly not right as entertainment. Now. No, no, it was a, it was but, a weird one. I mean, again, it it's got nothing to do with how good it is because I do think it's very good. It's just the 
the, no, but you the, can appreciate something, but you don't really need it right there. Yeah, in front can't of you. do it. Can't do it. But, but you just, know, going, so, just, just going back to Rami, which yeah, I really sorry. think you should <laughs> go back to, even though you know, you know, he's the quote unquote lead character. Yeah, what he does brilliantly is some episodes. I was talking about this last night on the radio. Are solely devoted to his sister, oh or yeah, his, or his mother, and he's not even in it, which makes it go, oh, this this is no vanity project, right? At all, um, and you see the weakness and the intelligence and the wit and the flaws, and I found it really, really moving. I, I yeah, yeah, I no, we go, we are going back. I, to I it. would hardly recommend it. It is definitely on our list, and. It's so interesting, and I'm really pleased that you're doing this with me now, even though I know we've been talking about this for <laughs> ages. Talking about it for <laughs> almost since you started doing it's this, isn't like it? three years. I know, it's ridiculous. Because, That's my because, fault. I apologise. No, shut up, man. I mean, we're both busy, and we're trying to always get together and do this and see each other as much as we can. But, you know, obviously, episode one was with our Vicky, and now, after a lovely... Not a lovely break, a tough break. <laughs> <laughs> but um, after a, uh, a well-earned break, uh, I'm back and with you. And whenever I have actors on, we generally don't talk about uh, their work and their projects because yeah. you know what it's like. It's not yeah. sort of too interesting. I don't want it to become um, some sort of piece in the Guardian and yeah, you know, plugging anyway. in. Exactly, it's not about that, but. It'd be remiss if we didn't briefly talk about Line of Duty purely because um, we all had to get together last week. Yeah. and we just had to. We just, we just had to do it. <laughs> it was a feeling. But we, had, we did bits and bobs of press and we were all remotely together on the, the first thing for GQ. And when after, a, it was like an hour and a bit, wasn't it? Yeah. Like that. And I came offline, and I felt really quite emotional and quite yeah, overwhelmed that, yeah. that we were we were all there talking about the memories of filming such a deadly serious show, <laughs> and, and the fact that we all probably haven't laughed as much filming a show for years yeah and Martin says it every time we kind of get together but it is it is the, the, the truth of it we laughed so much mm. and um, and it was a kind of um, a kind of deadly serious show but I th- and I don't I don't know exactly what it was I mean you know Vicky says we're all from kind of similar backgrounds and we've kind of got a similar kind of ethos on what we think kind of life's about but we were such a fucking eclectic bunch yeah. you know what I mean even if whatever similarities we had we were we were a hell of a mix and um, and to get on as well as we do and as well as we did is just instantly yeah instantly. and it was and it was very I mean I do think a lot of it had you know was down to Vicky who just kind of went, right, we're family and we're going to do it, you know, and, de- and really did take kind of certainly kind of emotional charge of us. But it was... It, and, and just the dynamic of that is 
TV's Neil Morrissey was yeah. just... It just meant there was always the possibility that we could end up bloody anywhere. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, it could be a quiet night in, or it could be... I remember, I think you mentioned this the other day, just um, the level of Morrissey's fame in the UK and... And it yeah. isn't just like, you know, because I got, I had, you know, even at that point, I had kind of, you know, I'd done a few things on the telly and you would get stopped and people go, aren't you that guy from, from, that, from that thing? And, we, you know, which is kind of fair enough. Morrissey, I've not seen, I've not been close to anybody who has that particular kind of fame apart from probably Lenny Henry. And it is that thing where people just, know you they just you're 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 one of their own you're like and a family member you're like the geezer you know it's not just oh you know they they know you because they they know your the show you've been in or they like the show that you've been in across the board people just know you it's and they say hello to you like you're a member of their family and exactly, it's, because and it they're was, approachable it was, yeah and it was just amazing i remember we going for a quiet pint with Morrissey, literally just the two of us going for a quiet pint, and we, we walk in the door, and he's not made two steps before the whole pub is doing the theme tune for <laughs> men, behind, men Behaving Badly. The whole, the whole pub. And he loved it. And he's he like, all oh, right. And, and uh, it's just, and that, that dynamic um, that we had was just, and I think because we were, um, we, had, we were kind of billeted in Birmingham on that mm. kind of first one. And we, we, in, in a weird way, we were the only ones we knew in Birmingham and we just kind of had to be there. So, um, but we, we, we had just a screaming, screaming good time. And, um, and it was, you know, and, and it was genuine because, you know, we're used to, because our job basically is, you know, joining the circus and, you know, going with the circus and then, you know, the gig's finished and you're going on. You're used to forcing yourself to make this group of people, um, a, a, you know, friends of yours for as long as it lasts. And yeah. and then you you could never see them again. And that's not a bad thing. It's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. Um, but Line of Duty, that first one, wasn't like that at all, really. We, I mean, it, I've said it a few times, but it was... When I think about that gig, and I think it is the the marker of a good gig, I remember the the job we've done, but much more than that, I remember the friends I made and the laughs that we had and the and the the curries that we ate and um, and what, and just what a good time it is and and it's something that you know hasn't just finished with the gig because. You know, it's whenever I'm, it's 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 grown. If yeah, anything. I mean, whenever I'm um, back home in the UK, um, out, out, you know, along with seeing family, you know, when 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 I'm back, there is always a point where I'm going. When am I going to see the line of duty lot? And who's in town? And who's around? And where can we meet up? And what are we going to do? So, mm. yeah, it was. And and it, you're right. It was. It was so lovely to kind of see us all together and with Simon and Jed as well and kind of, you know, talking through again 
what that was all like and particularly looking at it now and what it's become. I mean, I'm, I'm on one level, I'm very happy in a weird way for the, that we were all ignorant of it when we were starting out because if we knew back then what we knew now, I don't know how we would have got the job done. Yeah, I mean, thank God we didn't know, yeah. to be honest. Because I... I don't know if you were online at the time, but last Monday was the very first time that I'd ever watched episode one. <laughs> were you there? Did you hear that? I did. And, and I was like, ah. I mean, it was, it was really nerve-wracking for me to watch it because I, I try not to attend, yeah. not to watch stuff unless I really, really have to for, for, for various reasons. But, and I don't want to say that I was staggered or shocked or anything, but I was really, yes, I was proud of it, and not not from a vanity point of view, for the whole team and the whole show of yeah. what it was eight years ago and what it is now. Yeah. And it's, it, I think if you, even if you put that on now as a fresh television drama, you just go, yeah, this yeah. is really, really good. It's, well, it's I've, had, um, I've had a few messages from... Mates, and, and a, a couple of them who, um, uh, one of them started watching in series two and always meant to go back to series one, but never did. Yeah. And another mate of mine started in series four for some reason and just and hadn't kind of gone back and they'd kind of gone back now and gone, oh my God, what, what, yeah, I didn't realise. And, and <laughs> um, which is, you know, has, has kind of been nice, but it's one of those... Shows, I think, that stood the test of time because there was the surprise of it um, when it kind of first came out. And like Jed was saying, that it got fantastic numbers for BBC Two, even beyond what BBC Two and everybody who cares about numbers would would be happy with. And then, um, and then I remember it was quite recent. So it must have been, I was back home for, um, I think I must have been back home for, for Save Me. And for some reason, it, almost from the minute I got off the plane, I was being stopped. And usually that happens or had been happening quite a lot because of uh, uh, The Walking Dead. But this time it was because they had, um, I think the BBC iPlayer had started showing... Yeah. Line of Duty just before season five was about to come out. So they were doing mm. a big catch up on all of the Line of Duties before um, Stevie G's one was going to uh, was going to come out. And but it was like this whole bunch of people had just never seen it before. I, I mean, not just never seen the first one, had never seen any of it before. And there was suddenly all these new people who had come to it who were reacting to it like it had just been made. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I couldn't go two steps without people making... I think I went to the football at one point with my brother-in-law. I went to the new stadium for my football team, built a new stadium. And um, and I went in there. And usually when I go in there, there's a few people who hail you. But mostly, you know, everybody's a little bit too cool for school and they give you a swerve or occasionally you'll hear, oh, I never knew that you were a Spurs fan and all of that. And um, and I go yeah, and then I'll head off to my seat, and the you know people around that sit around have kind of got used to my mush being there now, but um, 
But I remember, go, I remember very clearly going in, and every second fella stopped me and went, line of duty, line of duty. Oh, you were wrong, didn't you? You were a bit bent, didn't you? Like that. And I was like, what's happened? It was insane. And also, uh, mutual friend and co-star of yours, Thomas Coombs, yes. uh, put out something on social media the other day going, oh, I only started at season three, so I'm just going back to watch season one. <laughs> we think more of you, Thomas Coombs. <laughs> he liked it, though. His dad got into it as well, which is sweet. Yeah, no, I had other people going, text me going, oh, my dad's never seen series one. He only joined at series two, so yeah. he doesn't... I was thinking, wow. I mean, it has to... It's in, and I was in uh, Manchester a couple of weeks ago having lunch with a mate and someone stopped by outside going, oh, God, I'm so sorry to bother you. I said, it's OK, it's OK. He said, me and my girlfriend, and we've just watched Series 1, Series 5 during lockdown and I can't believe we've never heard of it. And it's like, I just yeah. think it's so incredible and a massive testament to everybody's effort, but obviously, you know, Chad's writing that yeah. people are still disco- they're still discovering it now. Yeah. I mean, I think as a... Uh, just putting the puzzle together, the way that Jed has kind of navigated it, the way he's taken advantage of things that the audience identified with, the way that he's he's allowed it to, um, uh, to grow itself, but also the way that he's kind of taken the reins and, and kind of, you know, um, uh, kind of show run it really i mean the, yeah. the ways that just allowed it to to take on the life that it's taken on and always still remain ahead of it always still finding ways to surprise people always still finding ways to have people arguing and thinking and and still challenging them i think it's a i saw someone the other day sent me a thing saying where well, was some twitter thing about whether or not Line of Duty is the GOAT, the kind of greatest of all time. And they were comparing it to other kind of cop shows. And and you, you would have to say that it's up there. You would have to say that it's up there with, you know, um, you know with the, the best cop shows that have ever been made, I reckon. Absolutely. And also, there's something that, that you kind of touched on last week when we were, I think we were doing either the Radio Times thing or the GQ thing. And I've always said the great thing that Jed does is he never patronises the audience. Yeah. He, he makes them work for it. And I think you said something like, it was like the audience wanted, they craved some grown-up television. Yeah. And that's exactly what they got. Yeah. I mean, he didn't, he never, he doesn't spoon-feed it, he doesn't make it easy for people. You've got to watch You've got to you've got to watch. You've got to and be listen. Yeah, oh you've got God. to be kind of clued in. And I think yeah. it's and and also he's he's fought really hard for at least when the um, the new series go out that it's um, it's water cooler television. It's one a week. Um, watch watch it one a week. Talk about it. Think about it. Digest it. Come up with your questions and your theories because <laughs> here we go. Here comes another one. <laughs> And um, and I think it's I think it's um, I think it's genius. I think it's beautifully kind of old school, but it's it's necessary. He knows the story he's telling. And Jed, I've, I mean, I've said this a few times. There's maybe kind of Sally Wainwright um, can can do it as well, but no one puts together an hour of television like Jed McCurrier. No, 
No one, no one navigates an hour of television like Mercurio. It's, um, it's fantastic. It's a, you know, it's a pleasure to have been a part of it, truly. And also, back then, showrunners over in the UK were very few and far between. It was kind of a new thing. There was, it was completely. I mean, who? Maybe Russell T. Davis? Yeah, maybe Russell possibly. T. Davis. Maybe he's, he was Doctor Who, right? Uh, I, yes. And Sherlock, the guys who did Sherlock as well. Um, um, yeah, Stephen Moffat. Yeah, Stephen Moffat. Gators. I think you yeah. could. I think you could say that they were. Um, and again, maybe Sally Wainwright um, was show show running uh, in in that sense at the, as well. But um, it was it was yeah, it was very rare over here. I mean, it's it's you know it's all over um, American television and has been for for decades. But it's a, it was a very new thing to to the UK. Yeah, and and, and Jed has done it remarkably well. Do they still do that in America, one a week, or do they just drop everything in your lap? Like everything now, it depends on the network. Right. So if it's, if it's you know, but even then it kind of, you know, HBO do dropping all of them, but they also do um, a week by week. So like with, I think what with um, Michaela Cole's show at the moment, um, I May Destroy You, that's one a week. Um, but um, I think when they did Watchmen... They let Watchmen out just one lump, all ten or thirteen episodes, whatever it was. So, I think it depends on the project, depends on the the network. The bit depends on the network. Yeah, I yeah. think you know, like everybody says, Netflix kind of uh, changed the game. Really, where would we all be though during lockdown <laughs> for a lot of without sort of any? Sort of we would have seen a lot less. What's his name? Um, uh, what's his name? Nick Cage movies. That's for sure. That's true. But can we can we get enough Nick Cage? I don't know. Do you know we what? There is there are days when you flick through Nick Netflix and you'll just stop and go. Do you know what? Fuck it. I'll watch that Nick Cage film. I'll watch it all day long. Um, why not? It will. You know, it will do the job. Have you seen him in that remake of Bad Lieutenant? I have not. Is he good? Well, it's, you know, bonkers, yes. obviously. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's it's out there and yeah. no one makes those choices. Yeah. And you've got to go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to buy that. I think that's what's really exciting about it. Have you, have you seen online, someone showed it to me years ago, it's probably so apocryphal now, or not apocryphal, it's so, um, you know, it's so old viral, but it's just Nick Cage's meltdowns. No. In, no, his characters. It's just him, just, you know, when he blows up. You know, like, <laughs> he took my hand! Or, or, you know, or from, what should we call it, face-off, where he just goes, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, like that. And it's about, it's literally about five minutes of clips from Nick Cage movies where he just loses his shit. It is so hysterical. Well, it's a bit like the montage of Sean Bean in Sharp just saying the word bastard oh, from, really? all, from all different episodes. <laughs> you bastard, 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 bastard. And it goes on for like about three and a half minutes. And it's I love fucking, that. It's joyful. It's I'm gonna, well, there's a Nick Cage version of that where he just, it's just him losing his shit. And I think the, um, the title of the clip is Nick Cage losing his shit. But it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's fantastic. I love him. 
that's exactly what I'm going to be doing after we finish <laughs> I'm this gonna conversation. Go, I'm going to be on the Sean Bean one. I'm going to get myself oh my a little God, bit you of bean. You'll have to text me. You will love it. So we've got to go back and talk about Nottingham, haven't we? Yeah. Because that's obviously a nice link because of Vicky being my first ever guest and now we had a break and now you're back on and we've completed the line of duty circle. Apart from Jed, everybody's been on. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, he's coming on. He's coming he's on. He's coming on, he, he'll come on he, eventually. He wa- he'll be he your wanted, last ever guest. He wanted to do Desert Island Disc before me, so, yeah. so, which, which, he, which he's done. So, so um, how long were you in Nottingham for when you were born? Um, to be honest, I don't know. Right. So it was. It wasn't that long, mm. but um, it could have been the kind of number that we kind of settled on as a family figure. Is I was eighteen months. I mean, I had. Um, I had no direct memory of being in Nottingham other than going back there once we had moved to London to see relatives, to see cousins. Right. So I don't remember living there. So I was young when um, me, my mum and my brother moved to to London. My brother, who's two and a half years older than me, he has memories of Nottingham. Um, I don't. And, um, and it's the same, you know, because uh, we were there, from what I know, we were there... Um, when my mum was with my dad and then we moved to London when she weren't. And I have, um, I have no memory of him either. So he's, um, so I, I must've been anything from a year to 18 months. Um, when we, when we moved to South London and kind of was there ever since to a certain extent. What was the decision to move to South London? from your mum's point of view? Was it it a work thing? No, it wasn't really. I mean, I don't... Again, I don't know, to be absolutely honest, um, for sure. Um, I think it was about... From what I can... What I've garnered over the years, I'd lost contact with... I I lost my mum when I was young, and um, so lost contact with a lot of my family... Um, for a good number of years. Um, mm. And me and my brother went to live in a kid's home and then I was fostered when I was 15, 16. And, um, but then I got back in contact with a cousin of mine and she was an older cousin of mine. I think she was, she is um, like, I don't know, eight, seven or eight years older than me. So when we were kids... She was, you know, she was my grown-up teenage cousin, but she also hung around with... Her and my mum were very close. And right. um, and I... Speaking to her one night round at her place, her theory on it was that my my mum left Nottingham to get away from my dad. And um, and it was, a, it was a kind of escape thing. So she took right. us to and, and left. And initially she was in... Um, Shepherd's Bush and I, I think she just got offered uh, a place to live that was in in Battersea so um, we were in Battersea for a bit and then 
as we grew up, we needed someplace else and she got us a place in Streatham and Streatham kind of became, you know, the place that we were from. And did you get back in touch with that cousin to sort of tie up loose ends or join any dots or...? Um, no, we just got in... It, it was... I, do you know what it was? Um, having kids changed a lot for me and wanting to be in contact with family and wanting my kids to know my side of of the family and... Um, and have a and be and have a knowledge or an understanding of um of being from Trinidad my family are Trinidadian yeah. and um and it was and it's it's an important part of of uh, kind of my identity really so I wanted my kids to to know that they come from a very my wife comes from a very close knit um, uh, family and um, and we were very kind of close to them and I um, and although I I, uh, I was very also very close to my um, my uh, foster family um, I wanted I wanted it to be wider I wanted it to for them to know as much as possible because they were going to ask questions and they were you know the inevitable things and some of the questions I could answer and some of I couldn't but also I just my my um my cousin Gail is a uh, is a fantastic cook, <laughs> <laughs> and um and my girls just loved being in her house and just loved being around her with her kids and grandkids and um and it was a, it was just a fan- she always makes she always makes her house a place that you want to be and uh, and I remembered that from from growing up because. Yeah. Um, her mum, my auntie Norma, her place was a bit like that. It was a, you went there and there was always someone staying. There was always someone, you know, uh, some member of the family who was um, over for a, for a bit and was staying there. And, and Gail kind of created the same thing. So I just kind of just wanted my kids to, to know it. And, and I didn't know that until I started having kids. I was like, oh, okay, this is important to me. And, you know, and I think kids do that to you is that they're constantly making you decide who you are because mm. they're going to ask you they're going to ask you questions and you're going to if and there may well be questions that you've <laughs> you've never thought of before or never sure. thinking that you were going to have to um explain it out loud so you, you you end up finding out about yourself with kids and and that was one of the things I found out about myself how important that was and delving deeper, and you never know what's going to come out of their mouths. Yeah, from, I mean, it, from yeah, one it took me minute it to really, the next. Yeah, it took me um, uh, um, by surprise because until that point, my narrative was that my dad left, and um, and what my cousin was saying, no, it was your mum who left to 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 get away to get away from him, and um, and that you know that's a that's quite a big shift. Yeah, in, in, in your narrative, really. So it was, um, yeah, so it's a bit of a biggie. But it's, did, you, um, did you have any contact with your dad after no. you and your mum and your brother left? No. No. I mean, again, not that I know of. I don't, I, um, I wasn't, you know, uh, I was a little un at the beginning, but I have no memory of him. I believe on uh, on the first time we 
went on holiday and to meet family in Trinidad. I believe he was there at the same time, but um, didn't come across the road to um, to see us and, and say hello. So, no, not really. And because you were so young, obviously you never, you didn't have the father figure in your life to miss. No, and I didn't, no. I did, I mean, I... I was having this, I had this conversation with someone the other day um, because there is a, you know, there is a narrative which is, you know, you didn't have a father of your own and so, you know, you go looking for it or you make yourself into the father that you never had or whatever. All of those things are true and all of those things do do kind of happen. Um, and I'm, I remember speaking to one or other or more than one of my girls and the conversation has come up about my dad and they've you know they ask uh, have you never wanted to go and meet him or have you never wanted to find out about him or have you never you know have you never is there not that itch that you want to scratch and to be honest there isn't I didn't I didn't um, I, d I didn't grow up with an overly conscious sense of not having a dad um, and that's probably down to the job my mum did when um, when she was alive. But um, there were men around. My brother, my mum has had five brothers, four or five brothers, and two of those uncles I was very aware of and very close to. And they were, were they dead. were they in London, mate? Um, they were in Nottingham, right, so they okay. were the people that we would go and then. And then at one point, my uncle Nat moved to America. Um, but before he moved to America, just for a little bit, um, his son came and lived with us for a little bit, me, my mum and my brother. Mm. Um, my cousin Franklin came and lived with us while my uncle was setting himself up in America. And then he came back and, and got Franklin. Um, so those two uncles that were very much kind of father figures um, um, for me, my... Mum had a couple of boyfriends over the years, one of which, um, Benji, who drove the number 95 bus, um, was a lovely man and he was, he was kind of there for us even um, after our, our mum died. And, um, and then there was a, um, a friendship that we had kind of built up with a, um, a kind of a police officer, um, uh, well, a friend um, who just happened to be a police officer, but his name was Steve, is Steve, mm. and he was a police officer in Great Yarmouth, and we met him kind of just in the most arbitrary kind of way. We were on a a kind of um, Bible retreat with the church because we used to go to church a lot, and, and we were on a Bible retreat with the church in Nottingham, and not in Nottingham, in Derbyshire somewhere. Right. And we were staying at this kind of like now you describe it as like a golf hotel but we were staying at one of those kind of um uh hotels and um at the same time Steve was there with a number of other police officers on a speed driving course so to learn to drive the squad cars squad cars really fast and um I was a very shy kid. I don't know what came over me to say this, but I come down the stairs, me and my brother come down the stairs, and there's all of these police officers all lined up, all in their uniform, and I must have been 
six or seven, something like that, and a painfully shy kid. And I just went, evening all, and, and <laughs> ran, ran away from them. And, um, and I thought that was the end of it. But then, for some reason, we bumped into each other again, and he kind of, he was about 12 years older than, than us, and he kind of befriended us and um, befriended my mum, and they became friends, and he's been like a, uh, like a big brother kind of slash kind of father figure to us kind of ever since. I'm godfather to his kids and, and you know, we're in, I mean, we're not in contact as much as we were, but, you know, um, he's still very much part of my life. And when, what's, what, what age were you when your mum died, Lenny? I was 11. 11? Yeah, 10, 11. And did we, when you and your brother were put into children's homes? Were you put into the same home? Were you kept yeah. together? Yeah. We were kept together. I mean, that was, that, was one of the, that was one of the big blessings and it was one of the things that they did well. I mean, I mean, it goes without saying that, you know, I would have much preferred to have stayed at home with my mum. But if something shitty like um, losing your mum happens... Um, you could do a lot worse than being in the kids' home that me and my brother uh, ended up in. It was right. um, it's a big Georgian mansion um, on just across the road from Tootingbeck Common. It's a Grade Two listed building. Back garden was about the size of half of a football pitch, and it was eighteen kids. It had room for eighteen kids in in it, and it always had eighteen kids and. The staff stuck around, so there wasn't a big turnover of staff. So kids felt safe, kids felt secure. Um, me and my brother were there, but there were other families who were there and who were kept together. Um, but also, it was a place that was large enough to accommodate. You know, like me and my brother were uh, amongst the kids who were there. I think there was one other kid who was there out of the 18 who was orphaned or was completely estranged from their parents. Everybody else there had some kind of contact with their parent. Mm. Um, in some way were connected. You know, some of them would go home to their parents for the, for the whole, you know, for Christmas or stuff like that. Or the parents right. would come to the kids' home and have Christmas dinner around, around the table. And um, and like I said, it was it was you know it's not a situation that you would opt to be in. But if that, if something like that happened to you, uh, I, we we got lucky. We were in a we were in a good home, being cared for by good people. And being you know, as you said, someone who was painfully shy, being thrust into you know a children's home, which was like you know a school. Again, yeah. How how did you get on? Did you retreat into yourself, or did you? It was um, it was a weird one because it was very weird. As a as a shy kid, when I lost my mum, I just became shyer in a way. I just kind of stopped speaking. Um, I would kind of mumble the odd word to my brother, but I I just I stopped speaking for a long time. I don't even know how long, but um, I mean long enough that they kind of you know they were child psych and psychiatrists brought into the equation and stuff like that. Yeah. And, um, but w immediately after my mum dying, we went into a kind of small kids' home 
while they, I've now found out, while they did an assessment, so while they looked into family members that might have been able to take us on or friends of, um, my, a couple of my friends from school, their parents kind of put themselves forward as being possible foster parents for us um, right. or looking after one or other of us. Um, and they went to see if they could find my dad and see whether he had any interest or, or I mean, I've only found this out in the last few years. Um, so did, did we were they, in a... We were sorry, in a, mate, did they find him or...? Um, I don't know for sure. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to say yay or nay to that, but I yeah. am in the process of trying to get my notes, trying to get my kind of council uh, care notes yeah, so okay. I can have a look and see exactly what they did and what they didn't do. Yeah. Um, so I'm in the process of kind of doing that so I can pick them up. Lenny, have you read... Um, Lem, do you know Lem Cisse? I do know Lem Cisse, yeah. Have you read his book? I have, yeah, they sent it to me. Yeah, it's fantastic. Right. It's a I, kind I of... Have, I would have thought it would have been a yeah. of... of immense interest yeah there's there's um uh, there's um obviously kind of similarities there but i'm in the process of finding that out so i can you know just have a um have a uh, a, a look at a look at that but so we were in a smaller kids home for a, a, a bit until you know someplace suitable owned up in a long-term kids home and um and then it then it did and we ended up in north drive and i found out Again, a few years after I got to the kids' home, that one of the things that um, Nikki Quirk was her name, everybody called her Auntie Nikki, she was a formidable woman who ran the kids' home and, um, and lived there as well. She was, there were two, three members of staff who kind of lived in the kids' home permanently, and it was Nikki, Christina, Zeta. And, um, and I, and I was told later by one of my mates in the kids' home that before me and my brother moved in, um, Nikki gathered all of the kids together and explained our situation to them and how vulnerable and silent I was and that everybody should take care of me. Wow. And they did, obviously. Yeah, yeah like kids do, which is just take the piss out of you. But um, and you know it's eighteen kids to navigate, and the age group was from I think the youngest was two or three, and the oldest was sixteen, seventeen, and kind of everything in, and everything in between. But they did; they looked out for us, and we would fight amongst ourselves. But if you were on the outside of us, and you kind of um, uh, had a go at one of us. <laughs> Unfortunately, you would find that you'd just had a go at all of us. <laughs> and, help, uh, yeah. and we would all show up. So, yeah, it was... Um, that's what I mean about kind of um, good people. And I remember when I was 13, I... Um, and you were still in the home at 13? Yeah, I was in the home yeah. until I was 15, nearly 16. Right. But um, I remember when I was 13 and um, a gir- I, I let a, a girl who I wanted to be my girlfriend... Um, pierced my ear. So she kind of, you know, did the whole, whole sugar, I mean, ice cube and, and pin. and Hot needle. Hot needle and, and kind of pierced my ear. And I came back to the kids' home all kind of 
defiant and brave and look how cool I am. I got my stud kind of earring. And, um, and Auntie Nikki just lost her mind. She just was so angry at me. If she could have hit me, she would have hit me. She was so angry at me. And I, and I was trying to argue my corner. And I knew I, you know, I'd taken a liberty and I should have asked. I knew the right way to do it. I just chose the wrong way to kind of do it. And I remember saying to her, why, why are you so, so angry at me? And she said, because, because you know for a fact that your mum would have been upset if you'd done that. And she was absolutely right. Oh, wow. She was absolutely right. And it was a... And I remember being really, really angry at her for being, for being right. Right. But um, because ultimately... And, and, and I also thought, what an amazing thing she's done because it wasn't just me she was doing that for she was doing it for all the kids she was bringing them up with their parents in mind it's something that my foster mother has done which I think is an incredible act of generosity um which is to is to always keep my mum present in our growing relationship and Nikki did that in that moment she just was like your mum would be very upset that you did that and you know it and that's what you've done wrong. And it was a real, it was a real lesson, really. Yeah. And it was a real and that, lesson. And that must have upset you as well at the time. Oh, it made me furious. To say that. It made you furious. It made me furious. I was banging around. I was kind of, I think I grabbed my bike and jumped on it and rode across the common. I was like, I hate everybody. I hate you all. Because I hate, yeah, because she was right and yeah. she was and right about how I was were- wrong. You were, I mean, what were you, 15? 13. 13? Yeah. Of course, we don't know how to navigate our emotions. No. We're, st- we're still trying now. Got I no mean- idea. Got no idea. And I was, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a kid, I was, a, I was a very emotional, very emotional kid. But it's a um, very emotional, silent kid. You can imagine that, can't you? Oh, my God. <laughs> Time bomb, man. Time I'm just going to sit in the corner. It was either be an actor or a serial killer. <laughs> Um, Flip the yeah. coin. Thank yeah. God it came at tails. <laughs> um, Best of three. Lenny, when when did you get a foster home and get fostered for the first time? Um, it was a it was a program that was um, that was happening because our children's home was in Wandsworth. Wandsworth were looking for a way of cutting their childcare bill so that they, it was around the time of the poll tax and the community charge and Wandsworth were very famous for having a ridiculously low poll tax and community charge and and and, um, and the house that you know that we lived in our kids home um, they were looking to sell on the open market because even then in 1981 82 it was mm. worth about three million quid on the open market. Oh, my God. And, you know, it was a, I don't know, like a 10, 11 room Georgian mansion with a granny flat. Um, you know, it was, it was huge. And um, they were looking to sell it, bring down their, um, and move their focus of childcare into fostering. So they had this drive, which was to foster a teenager. And, right. um and one of the members of staff who I was particularly close to at that particular time I was having a conversation with them and he said, you should have a look at this foster a teenager thing because 
they close the kids home down, you're going to have no place to come back to. And it just struck me really um, strongly because one of the other things about the home is that, about the home I grew up in, is that kids who had left would come back. Um, and sometimes they would bring their kids and they, you know, they, they regularly would come back like you would go home at the weekend. You know, right. they, they were doing that and the home provided that service for them because the staff were there. And um, so there was a foster a teenager drive. Um, I started doing the classes for it, started thinking about it seriously, spoke to my brother about it, decided it was a, it was probably a, a good thing for me. And I was paired, well, no, they give you a, you know, I think there was a list of three or something that my social worker came up with who were, were possible candidates and my foster mother um, was on it and um, uh, I think she was the one and only one I met. I'm almost certain of that. Um, but she was a social worker herself. She was a social worker for Wandsworth, as it turned out, in the fostering and adoption unit. And um, and I went and met her, and which was scary. Um, and we just laughed, really, when I first met her. We met in a neutral venue, so she didn't come to the kids' home and I didn't go to her house. Mm-hmm. I think we met in my social worker's office. And... Um, she had picked me out of the pile and I had picked her out of the pile. And, um, and she's, uh, she's lovely, she's tiny, she's formidable, she's scary, she doesn't suffer falls gladly. She's a deeply, deeply religious woman um, with a twinkle. And, um, and it was... Uh, and then I started visiting her in her house, in her home, met um, her son and daughter, my foster brother and sister. And, um, and I think all in, it was about maybe five or six months from beginning to end before I finally said, OK, I'm ready. And just before my 16th birthday, um, I moved in with her permanently. And was this all anchored around you as a young boy? Were they saying, we'll move when you feel ready, it's all... Um, they, it certainly kind of um, felt that way. I did feel, I have to say, I did feel like I was um, kind of in charge of it as much as I could be. Yeah. And um, and it was, uh, but it was, I mean, I'd be, I'd be lying if I didn't say that it, it wasn't a kind of an easy transition. Um, it was, it's a difficult time because you're 15, 16, and at that time you're looking for your independence. You're looking to move away from your family. You're looking to find out who you are Mm. in the world. And at that time I was being asked to um, join in in a family and try and find find my place. And my foster brother was at home. My foster sister had left home. Um, So I kind of got closer to my foster brother first um, and, um, and sooner and um, and then subsequently got very close to my foster sister, kind of took a bit longer. It was kind of, because I didn't know her as well. But so it took a, took a few more years, but we, yeah, but we're, you know, and, and the, their commitment to me officially um, was only a couple of years. It was only until I was 18 until right. basically, 
you know, uh, Wandsworth relinquished any responsibility for me. But um, but that, you know, and, and and I, some of the kids I was in the kids' home with um, also got fostered at the same time as I got fostered. And, um, and in some cases, their fostering was much more clear-cut. It was... You're fostered, you live there until you're 18 and then it's time to, time to go. There was never that situation with my, with my foster family. There was never any... I left home when I wanted to leave home when I went to drama school when I was 19, nearly 20. I left home mm. and moved around the corner so I was close enough to come back and, and, do, my, and do my washing and grab some food. And, um, and my foster family without any kind of conversation just took me on as one of their own and my kids know my I mean I don't even know what age my kids were when they found out that my foster mother wasn't actually my mum and their uncle Tony and auntie Yvonne weren't actually their aunt and uncle by blood and that their kids weren't actually their cousins I mean I don't even know when that conversation kind of came up because it very rarely came up between us. And of course, I bet nothing changed for your girls to even have that information in their lives. No, no, no not at all, really. I mean, they are, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just their family. I mean, no one introduces anybody, um, you know, I think uh, uh, more than anybody, I'm the only one who uses the kind of foster bit um, only in the sense of when I'm talking about my mum, I have to say my mum, but I have to differentiate her from my foster mother. Yeah, so I, I tend to be the person who says it, but my no one in the family does. And was your brother not on the foster scheme because he was that bit older than you, so therefore... Yeah, he he, they'd all, he'd, already, he'd already found... Um, uh, I mean, he could have left when the kids' home when he was 16. He stayed on at the kids' home basically to keep an eye on me until he was 18, and then he got his own place. Right. He kind of got a semi-independent place, and um, and then he got you know then he got his own place. And were you still you were obviously still in touch with him oh, when God, you yeah. moved to your foster? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he would come over for Christmas or just come over. Yeah, no, they they we they kind of very much supported and. And kept that um, relation and knew how important that relationship was. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, I mean they they are kind of and my brother, my brother and my foster brother kind of knew each other because my foster family lived around the corner from Streatham Ice Skating Rink, and we used to spend quite a lot of time at the ice rink. And my brother used to work there, so he knew virtually everybody in the neighbourhood. Right. Um. So they kind of knew. So it was yeah. It was it was remarkably. Um, easy and um, and uh, again I count myself exceptionally lucky um, to have uh, been fostered by them Lenny when did the shyness um, start to maybe not drift away but when did the confidence start to maybe build up within you um I'm I was think, I'm I, thinking I, about the, the you know the route to drama school. It doesn't well you know, even even the route to drama school was uh, was clouded in kind of shyness because I kind of kept it to myself. I was frightened to kind of say out loud, "Oh, I want to be an actor," because it just wasn't 
it just wasn't uh, in my circle of, or my family's circle of understanding. It wasn't, you know, and not because they frowned on it. They just didn't realise that it was something you can build a life around. And no one has any frame of reference of it. And yeah, they they had absolutely no frame of reference, although they were incredibly supportive. They showed up, my foster family... Um, the the kids from the kids' home, the guys I was at school with, they showed up to every single play I did. Um, they would they would come, they would come and support me, they would come and kind of um, and be there. And and I did some weird and wacky plays. And, and like I said, my foster family, a deeply religious um, um, family, they would come and see kind of mad things and just, and they'd bring the church along. So they'd bring people from the church and there'd be people effing and blinding. And they would try, you know, they would, you know, it would all, they were incredibly, incredibly supportive. And, um, but they were worried about the choice I was kind of making. And, um, and I think just as I grew up, I kind of, my first instinct, even to now, is, um, is, the, is the first thing I have to get over is my shyness. The first thing I have to get over, I, 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 weirdly for the job that I do, kind of um, first time walking into a room, I, I, I hate it. I yeah. um, I'm, I, I, I'm petrified yeah. of it. Yeah. Read throughs um, scare the scare the hell out of me. M- meeting anybody for the first time, sometimes phone calls. I just find it with people I don't know. I just mm. I find it really difficult. Um, but if I'm with friends, and even from a kid, I didn't. I didn't need a huge amount of friends. Um, I always used seem to run with, you know, I needed three or four friends of my brother and I was fine. And, um, and it's pretty much to a certain extent like that is kind of now. Um, but when I got a group of friends and where I feel safe, I suppose, I'm not shy i can i can join in i can be kind of part of it and um and i think when i did my first play which wasn't which was i went out and and did it i found a that kind of sense of yourself that you get when you I mean at the time it was theatre so it's when you're doing theatre it was just being around those so many actors are insecure confident people yeah I understand because you're dealing with we're dealing with a a plethora of different personalities and some people are very, very strong, confident, and insecure, right yeah. at the same time, and, and in exactly the same moment. Yeah, and exactly. um, and I, I don't know. I just, I just, I was just I'm somewhere. My my um, spirit must have just kind of gone. Oh, I'm all right here. <laughs> this is all right, you know. And um, 
And I, also, because I went to an all-boys school, I was saying this to someone the other day, I went to an all-boys school that was kind of kind of uh, 55%, 60% non-white. So there was a lot of black kids there, a lot of um, kids, kids from the Asian subcontinent who were there um, as well, and the Indian subcontinent who were there as well. And so we had religion, which you know, didn't unify us kind of cultural background didn't unify us. What unified yeah. my school of two and a half thousand boys was sport. And um, and it was a school where we played any sport you, ne- you could name, we had a school team. Any sport you could name, we had a sport. We had lacrosse, we had judo, we had swimming, we had diving, we had karate, we had football, we had, bar- we had everything. Sword, sword fighting and fencing, we had everything. If you if you, if it was a sport, you could play it at my school. So that the the identity or the position that you held in school was whether or not you made the team. What right. team are you in? Are you in the first team, second team, third team? You know who and what sport are you playing? Are you playing football or rugby or what? What is it? All our assemblies were how the sports teams did at the weekend. It was sports mad, my school, and um, and I played in the um, the rugby team and I played in the in one of the football teams as well, and um, played a bit of basketball, played a bit of volleyball. But the mindset was, if you were told at my school that you were good enough to be in the team, it, you could walk with a bit of a swagger. Right, okay. Um, and when I went to uh, the cockpit theatre to do my first play, a musical called Just Good Friends, um, I was spending my whole summer holiday there, made a, a bunch of really good friends who are still friends to this day, I was 15, 16. So it was just after I was fostered. I went to live with my foster family and did my first play all in the same year. And um, at the end of the, the run of the play, I was walking across the road. Or one night while we were performing, I was walking across the road to the pub, even though I didn't drink. Um, when I was on my way across the road to the pub because that's where everybody congregates after a play. And the... Um, choreographer for the for the play stopped me halfway across the road and said Lenny you're going to do this again and I was going no you know I was very very South London then I was going I don't know you know I mean I might do I might I think I might just you know look at something else really because I've got to go to university because that's important and she said um the only reason I'm asking because I think if you decided to do this it could be very worthwhile and it was like she was saying you're good enough to be on the team and I remember very clearly me just standing up a little bit and going, what do you mean? And her going, I think you could be, I think you could be good at this, Lenny. I think you could, you, can, you could make a career out of this even maybe, but I think you should, you should try. And it was, it, I heard, you're good enough to be on the team, mate. You're good enough to play. And, yeah. um, and that just changed my, my focus on, on theatre and I didn't I went back there the, the the next year and then got in with mates who and followed them what they were doing next so auditioned for the Lyric Youth Theatre got into the Lyric Youth Theatre auditioned for the National Youth Theatre got into the National Youth Theatre then everybody was talking about drama schools and I was like all right so I should probably audition for drama schools then yeah. and saved up auditioned for three drama schools got into two of them went to Guildhall it's so fascinating because when I talk to actors and it, and it comes up time and time again, 
is just that one person that says one thing or opens a certain door and the light comes on and you go, oh, oh right, okay, well, it's like you're saying, oh, yeah. I'm, good enough, I'm, I'm good enough to play on the team, I'm on the team, or yeah. you're, you're accepting me, or you, you've heard me, or you've seen me in yeah. some sort of way. Yeah. That gives and, and, you that little boost. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, there's no way I could have articulated it um, in that way when it was kind of happening. But I do remember the moment really, really clearly mm. of looking at her name was Karen. Karen, can't remember her last name. She used to teach at Central, and um, and I just remember her because also it was a grown up. <laughs> It was a grown-up kind of saying, and we all knew that, you know, she was proper. That, yeah. you know, um, it was a grown-up kind of going, I think you can, I think you can do this. And she, you know, she would know. And, um, yeah, and it was, and it, it, it yeah, it, it most certainly made a difference. And another episode is almost done because yes that's right we had to stop it there because we've got part two with lenny james tomorrow morning that's friday morning um i'm gonna keep this short and sweet because we've got to get on with our day and i want to talk to you about some new merch stuff but we'll, we'll we'll save that for um tomorrow okay i really really hope you enjoyed this first half and it's just gonna get better it's a brilliant conversation i'm so thrilled um look thank you so much for downloading and supporting this podcast. You know it means the world to us, and we're so thrilled to be back. So, until tomorrow, I've been Craig Parkinson, and he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Cheers.